Going to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And I want you to keep in mind that I do take requests. And a number of you asked for this book. And this is what you're getting. <laughs> this is the book of Romans. Um, Paul is setting up this great treatise on the gospel. And for the first several chapters, it focuses on sin for the very simple reason that it focuses on us and our need for sin. So I'm going to ask you to turn this morning with me. I'm going to begin at the last verse of chapter 1 and read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And so Paul writes, after a long roster of sins, a long list of egregious things that, that we all do. And then he writes, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, to judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? You who judge those, pra those practicing such things are doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, Long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who rendered to each according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Father, we praise you for this admonishment this morning, O Lord. Let us clear our minds and look into the deep things of God and humble us before you that we might receive your teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul writes, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. That's the name of the sermon, by the way. Inexcusable. I, it seems to me that in the New Testament, whenever Paul says, O man, it's not something good that's going to be said after it. You're inexcusable, O man. We've got to get something straight in the body of Christ. And that's the whole point of this. God is able to forgive sin, but he's not going to excuse it. It'll always be sin. Whether you do it with your little profession of faith, it's still the same thing. It's still the same sin. And the same God must judge the same sin here as he sees it here. That's who he is. He must be true to himself. And so he says, you're inexcusable, old man. This, in other words, there's no excuse for you. I used to say to my mother, excuse me. And she'd say, there's no excuse for you. 
Whoever you are to judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, we spent a few sessions on chapter 1 of this epistle, and chapter 2, we must be alerted, is linked to the first by the obvious word, therefore. So he writes this whole first chapter, he gives us this whole list of sins, and then he warns at the very end that some of you who are judging those, you receive that list of sins for them, but what about you? And he says, therefore, and he connects it to this, and now he's going to tell us what happens to those who think they're in the clear. So there's this important link, this word therefore, links the last chapter with this. And so we must be ready as we approach this text to keep in mind and to remember the lessons and declarations of chapter 1, and I hope you keep them in mind. Some of you tell me, I love to, uh, during the week, to turn on the sermon and hear it again. People say that. Several of you say that to me. I want to hear it again because I might have missed something in it. Um, And so I go back and I keep these things in my mind. Well, that's what I have to do. Um, This week, of course, I had to call Jared because he put the wrong sermon up. And um, I had to say, (laughs) and I know right away, I told Jared this morning, you know how I know? The tie. (laughs) It was the wrong tie. I said, what's he doing? It's the same tie as last week. Jared fixed it right away. Jared's a very good Christian, and he immediately repented. (laughs) Sorry, Pastor. (laughs) My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, But we have to be ready as we approach this text and keep in mind to remember the lessons. Whatever it takes, try to remember the lessons, friends. When we get to Romans 8, it's no good to you if you don't remember Romans 1, 2, and 3. Paul didn't write it for nothing. We love to take a little passage and, oh, points one, two, and three, and make little notes and little acrostics. I'm going to teach today on love. Point number one is L. Point number four is E. No, friends, we've got to do better than that, okay? That's, that's children's Sunday school. This is serious stuff what Paul's giving us here. Try to remember last week and this week. That's why he says, therefore. He says, therefore, because he assumes you have all that under your belt and in your heart and in your mind. So point number one is surely this, and this, it may be stated, is the essential theme of the entire epistle, the entire epistle. And so Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the great theme of it. The power of God isn't just that he sent Christ. The power of God isn't just that by faith you're redeemed, the power of God is that the death of Christ was sufficient to pay for the egregious sins that he's listing. It's not a small thing. It's not, oh, I made him my Savior, I didn't make him my Lord type thing. He's Lord and Savior, you don't make him anything. He is what he is. Clearly, the unashamed proclamation of God's saving gospel is the theme of the epistle. And the epistle's only the beginning, with 15 more chapters to come. Having said that, however, the apostle goes on to do a very convincing job of impressing upon the recipients of this letter that every one of them is in dire need of this gospel. Every one of them is equally in need. There are no exceptions. There are no acceptable excuses. And so I would 
remind you of what I've often said. A merciful God may forgive sin, but a righteous God can never excuse sin. It always offends Him. I would say perhaps more so, is the Apostle's point, in those who think they are righteous because of who they are, or what they said, or their circumstances, or what they did, or who their parents were, or where they sit in the church, and how often they come, and how much they give. I could go on. Therefore, you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Friends, forgiveness, think of forgiveness like this. It's the gold standard. Remember the gold standard? We had, we had treasury notes. We had dollar bills. And there were notes. It says right on it. It's a check from the government. It's what it is, right? But there was gold. There was something of intrinsic value. Frankly, I don't know why gold has intrinsic value. I liked the, uh, I liked the goat standard better. You know, when Abraham had this many goats, I mean, if, you got really, if things got really bad, you can't eat the gold, but you can eat the goat. But anyway, that's my little speech on that. But there was a, think of it as the gold standard. They, they wrote the check, but there's got to be something in the bank. Forgiveness is like this. You come into my house, let's say on a Thursday night, and you break a lamp, and it's splattered all over the floor. And you look at Karen and you say, I'm so sorry I broke that lamp. And Karen says, I forgive you. And what does that mean? When she says, I'll forgive you, what does it mean? Somebody has to pay for the lamp still. The lamp's broke, right? The fact that she forgives you means, don't worry, I'll pay for the lamp. That's forgiveness. God's saying sin still has the same damage, has the same cost. It's still the gold standard. Something is lost. You offended the Almighty. Someone's got to pay for this. It can be you, and it can be me. And trust me, you and me can't afford it. We can't afford the lamp. By the way, don't break the little green one. Daniel gave that to his mother for her birthday about, about 30 years ago. That wouldn't be good. Um, but really, forgiveness, someone has to pay for the sin. It's not like God says, oh, you said this little thing, you, you went up to the altar. Oh, don't worry about all that sin that you did. You're inexcusable, he says. And we know this from very specific references to both parties within the confessing church, the essential groupings of believers in that time. There was the Jew and there was the Greek. And so having noted his intention of preaching to them the saving gospel message of Christ, he goes on to establish among them their particular personal need to receive the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. The Jew and the Greek. There's no one who reads the letter, friends. There's no one in the church at Rome There's no one on the face of the earth who is not in dire need to hear and to obey the righteous requirements of the gospel. Think of it this way, to hear and to heed. That's what you need. You need to hear it and you need to heed it. And so he makes this remarkable statement, which becomes the theme of the first three chapters of the letter. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Not the ungodliness of those Roman pagans over there, but what about you Jews? The unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? It could be any truth we're talking about, but what he's talking about is suppressing the truth within yourself of your own sin and need for Christ. The wrath of God is on you. The remainder of the chapter is the apostles building upon the theme of the wrath of God. And so I have to say that this becomes one of the major themes of the second chapter as well. And so Paul knows that in our humanness, 
we love to make two essential arguments. We love to make two essential arguments with regard to the condition of our own souls and our personal need to heed the dire warnings and to deny our part in his reprehensible roster of sins. Our first argument against our own need is that we're not so bad as some others, who we may believe are somehow more needy than we are with regard to a Savior. That's our first thing. We would never say it. We're too smart to say it. But Paul knows, and the Holy Spirit knows, that we think it. We're too smart to say it. I know I'm too smart to say it. And I think you are. The second argument is from another place of self-delusion, or as Paul puts it, suppression of truth, right? You're suppressing the truth within yourself of your own need, is that the God we know is essentially good and merciful deity, and that we have nothing to fear with regard to falling into his hands. God is good. We love to say that. I see that on every church marquee as I drive by. How about, you're inexcusable, O man. No one puts that up. How about the wrath of God is upon all humanity? No one puts that up. Friends, I hate cliches more than anyone, but I hate Bible cliches because they're dangerous, eternally dangerous things. Friends, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Now, I know that these two arguments make up the body of most sermon texts that will be preached this morning. We'll be told how good and lucky we are. And there's nothing I love to do more than that. There's nothing I love to do to go to one of those comforting psalms that talks about God feeds the goats and the hills and the springs and he waters the valleys and I could just sit there and be comforted. But I can miss a lot of the rest of it. I mean, the psalms are imprecatory. They talk about the sin of man, the righteousness of man. I am a worm and no man, David said to God. The Bible's diverse, friends. So there'll be this insistence in those kind of sermons that the one who's made a decision for Christ is safe. And he's saved because God loves him. Friends, I got to say, I, I, I hear that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but I don't really know that that's true. I have no idea what God's plan for your life is. I know what God's plan for Paul's life is. He told Ananias what his, what his plan was. He says, I have chosen this man to suffer for my sake. That was Paul's wonderful plan. And it's wonderful. I don't know that we'd want that plan. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. He has a wonderful plan, all right. Friends, most preachers will gladly contribute to the delusion that our sins will not be judged because of who we are. I'll also say to you that I have the first and second chapters of Romans to remind me that this is indeed not the case. It may be that we have misunderstood the deity. But rather, it's this sin in us. It's the blinding nature of sin. Friends, sin blinds us to the truth. It suppresses the truth. And we like that part of sin. It allows us to exempt ourselves from the wrath of God that the apostle clearly states is upon all men. Many preachers focus primarily in the comforting texts of Scripture and bypass some of these more convicting passages. I remember a time I was preaching in another church locally, and uh, someone showed me this wonderful new study Bible that they had. And it was, does anyone remember Robert Schuller? The Crystal Cathedral, possibility thinking, inch by inch, anything's a cinch. You, you know, that's not the gospel. It was sort of a motivational, it was sort of a motivational, you know, uh, be the best you can be. 
right, sort of thing. And so he showed me the Robert Schuler Bible. Schuler's long dead now, and the ministry failed after him because his son came in and really preached the gospel, and no one wanted to hear it. That's my opinion. I just saw a documentary on this whole thing. Of course, they didn't pick up on that part of it because secular documentaries don't know that kind of thing. But he shows me the Schuler Bible, and he says he, he's highlighted all the important verses. But that's not what the Schuler Index said. It said that Dr. Schuler highlighted all the positive verses. So I turned to the book of Romans, and it said, the gift of God is eternal life, and it had this bright blue highlight. But what it didn't say is what was said in the phrase before that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If one can't be without the other. It was deceptive. It was designed to suppress the truth and keep it suppressed. And we can't do that here. We can't do that, and I'll tell you why we can't do that, because your pastor is a builder, and I know how to follow the print. I don't get paid unless I follow the print. I have the blueprint before me. I know what it says. I know how to build this cathedral, but we have to start here before we get here. And then I have to have someone come in and inspect the foundation that we built and make sure it'll hold the rest. So many preachers focus on comforting passages and and bypass the convicting ones, but we can't do that with Romans 2. Romans 2 points a finger. It points a finger at those who escape being pointed at in Romans 1. Doesn't leave us out. There's no one here in Rome where Paul's saying, don't worry, I got you guys covered. And there's another dangerous spiritual quality in us in all this discomfort, that we're somehow God's special objects of love and that he would never strike out wrathfully against us. And this is precisely what allows us to hear his fearful list of reprehensible sins and look around at other people and hope that these poor sinners are paying close attention. So Paul doesn't allow that to happen. And he can't be there, so he sends his words there. And so just when we're satisfied that the people that the apostle, rather, has given those bad people what for. He wheels about in his diatribe and points his bony, accusing finger at you and me. And he makes the declaration that we have before us, therefore you are an excusable old man. I can almost picture it. Here's the, the great building they're meeting in in the Church of Rome. Could be a mega church. It was a mega city of the time. Biggest in the world, right? And I could just imagine... As I read the book of James, I can almost imagine that the Jews were over here and the pagans were over here and they weren't mixing. The Jews hadn't quite caught on yet, that we're as sinful as they are. And so there's this danger in pointing to those bad people and hoping that they're hearing everything the pastor's saying and giving and thinking that somehow we're excused. He's clearly not exempting certain groups here. He refers to the whole mass of men in the earth. Then he doubles down on the warning by adding, you judge another, you condemn yourself. In other words, there's no one exempt from his warnings. And so as chapter 1 stressed the vileness of sin, chapter 2 stresses the subtlety of sin. Sin is very subtle. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, You shall not murder. I say to you, anyone who hates his brother is guilty of murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say anyone who's thought about adultery has committed adultery. That's a high bar. So he's clearly not exempting any groups. 
And so he doubles down on the warning by adding, you judge another, you condemn yourself. In other words, there's no one exempt from his warnings. It's for all of us to hear and to fear. And so as chapter 1 stressed the vileness of sin, chapter 2 stresses the subtlety of sin, or one might say the prejudice of sin. Sin gives us a prejudice. And what's a prejudice? A suppression of truth. So let me set this up from a first century viewpoint. We have the church at Rome. And it's presumably a vast congregation, as we've said. <laughs> and we make this assumption due to the fact that Rome of that time was the most populous, most metropolitan. You know, you talk about diversity like it's some new thing. Everything's got to be diverse today. Rome was probably the most diverse place on earth. So was Jerusalem during the Passover. Remember the Pentecost? They came down and people were from Parthians and Medes and Ethiopians and Cretans. And they were from everywhere. They were from every color, every tongue. It was diverse. No one had to teach them that. But it was populous. It was metropolitan. Surely the congregation consisted of a wide variety of ethnic and religious members who had been converted or had heard the gospel and came to hear more. And he notes the two major divisions into which all the other lesser divisions would fall. There's the Jew, and there is the Greek. So I'll suggest to you that the first chapter of Romans, with its list of egregious sins that he imputes upon our records, was for everyone to consider, and to consider himself, and not just others, with regard to their own transgressions. But it was the custom of the Jews at that time to exempt themselves from the charges the Jews of the day would have certainly agreed that the pagan converts among them must be involved in every form of debauchery and idolatry. Of course, we're not idolatrous. We're monotheistic. We have the law. We have no strange gods before us, they would say. They forget their history when they do that. You know, how many kings? Let me tell you, you have two books of kings that talk about all the kings chronologically first in Israel and then in Judah. You know, in Israel, there were 19 kings. Go and count them and see if I'm not right. You know how many were righteous before God? Zero. And in Judah, there were 20 kings. You know how many were righteous? Eight and 12 bad. That's not a good record. So don't go thinking to yourself, first century Jew, that it's only the pagan that falls into idolatry. How many times has he got to go through in the Old Testament and say, and then, this, then Jeroboam was evil in the sight of the Lord because he set up the high places and worshipped the calf. And he kept, he's, you know, we think of the golden calf in Moses' time. Jeroboam set one up far later than that. And so the Jews of the day would have certainly agreed that the pagan converts were certainly debauched and idolatrous, but that they, the chosen people, were under no such warrant. Surely when the apostle wrote that they changed the glory of God from incorruptible God to corruptible man and birds and beasts and creeping things, he in no way impugned these wonderful monotheistic Jews, but only the deplorable polytheistic pagans. It's they who do all those things. It's they who need an intervening God to rescue them, to make their punishment, to take their punishment rather for them. It's they and not us who need to fall on their knees and confess the truthfulness of the apostles' claims regarding them and their egregious sinfulness. And so these wonderful, beloved, chosen agree that there's no need to be ashamed of such a gospel of this. Of course Paul's not ashamed. He's a Jew. Of course he's not ashamed. He's a Pharisee. He's nothing to fear before God. He's chosen. Surely these sinners, however, need a Savior. And if it pleases you, I'll sit on this side of the church. 
And then to their utter surprise, the apostle turns his sermon upon them. And it's essential that he must make all men guilty if he's to profess the righteousness, the impartiality, and the unchangeableness of God. You see, this is the essential argument. If God is righteous, friends, if God is truthful, if God is no respecter of persons, then his wrath must be dispensed equally upon anyone who sins. The sin he hates here, he hates here. He's no respecter of the container of the sin. And there could be no special class of people who may be exempt from the righteous judgment of a righteous God. If they, friends, if we can see that the sins listed are worthy of God's judgment, then they're equally worthy of judgment in us as they are in them. This is the essential argument of the apostle. And so he says in the last verse of chapter 1 that anyone who knows the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, and they're found to do the same, they condemn themselves. It's obvious. They know this act is worthy of death. And in some manner or fashion, they do the same work. So they've judged themselves. Because they know the act is worthy of death. And it's in both. In condemning others, you condemn yourself, he says. For you who judge practice the same things. And so they willfully forget that God does not put wrath upon people or peoples indiscriminately. Rather, God puts wrath upon sins. It's standards always the same. It's sin that's offensive to God. And if the sin of one is present in the other, we have by our own admission noted that God must punish both. That's the gospel. This is the foundation he's building in this. That's the definition, friends, of righteousness. That the standard's always the same. Remember, liberty is blind, right? Lady Justice, rather, is blind. That's the definition of righteousness. It's the definition of impartiality. God does not excuse one for the same offense he condemns in another. His essential righteousness would be at stake if he did that. We would say he's a corrupt judge. But there's no danger of that. As Paul noted to Timothy, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If we deny God, it doesn't change him one bit. He won't deny himself. And so the theme of the chapter is emphatically given. We read this, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. It's according to truth. God is a truthful God. It's not according to your station in life. It's not according to your sad circumstances in your life. It's not according to your feelings. It's not according to any of these things. So if God's impartial and no respecter of persons, then this would be the definition. This would be the application of judging according to truth. That's how it's done. Think of it this way. If you're like me, maybe you've seen many movies and TV depictions of courtroom scenes. I don't know why I love courtroom scenes. And I can think of a scene, I can, I, can, I can refer to you some places to go in film to, to know what I'm talking about. Twelve Angry Men comes to mind, an old black and white with Henry Fonda. Um, and that Twelve Angry Men are twelve jurors talking about a Puerto Rican guy who is accused of murder. All right? So I've seen all these kinds of movies, right? And the person on trial is a horrible person. He's on trial for horrible crimes, and everybody, of course, knows that. He's a known miscreant means a bad guy. He's an obvious troublemaker. Even in the courtroom, he's boisterous and disrespectful. He's everything we hate. 
It's easy for the jury to see that the man's evil and cantankerous, right? But if they've been properly apprised of their duty, they know that they must convict upon the basis of guilt of a specific charge. They can't lose the charge in the fact that the man's not polite, not a nice guy. They may not hang the man for being a bad guy, but for being guilty of a specific crime that he's charged with. And if they cannot find him guilty beyond reasonable doubt, they must acquit him. They cannot be respecters of persons. They cannot say, well, you know what? He's really a bad guy anyway, so let's just hang him. That's not what it's about. There's a standard that must be true. If they can't find him guilty of that specific thing, they just can't say, I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he smells. I don't like the way he talks. I've heard other things about him. I like the way he treats his wife. It's not what he's on trial for. He's on trial for something. And you, have a, and you have a standard. That specific thing is what we're talking about. And if they can't find him guilty, they must acquit him. They cannot be respecters of persons. He's either guilty or he's not guilty. Not because of who he is. Or whether or not we like him. He's guilty or not guilty because of what he has done. That's the standard. And Paul's saying, you're all have doing the same thing. Part of Paul's point has to do with human nature and the effect of sin upon it. Friends, sin blinds us to our own faults. We see them clearly in others. Martin Lloyd-Jones developed this theme so much about how we see it clearly in others. Um, I, 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 was, I was tempted. I wanted to quote from him so much, I was tempted to get up here and just read his sermon to you. It was fantastic. And we hate... We hate that sin might be noticed as present in us. And I'm saying that, um, that most of the sins on Paul's list were present in the church of Rome. I believe most of the sins on Paul's list are present in the church of our day. And though I love this church most of all, I'll not be blinded to the fact that they're present here as well. And if we're blinded to that individually, then feel the power of Paul's indictment when he says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are. Whoever you are covers a lot of ground. It's not according to preference. I happen to like this guy. He's innocent. I don't like this guy. He's guilty. We know that the righteous judgment of God is according to truth. We know it. So if the sin that is reprehensible here is reprehensible here as well. It's not according to preference. It's not according to feelings. We love our feelings. We are a universe of snowflakes today. Do you know how that made me feel? Uh, I got a feeling I'm about to find out. It's not according to personalities. It's not according to circumstances. It's not according to your level of teaching or your family background. It's not according to privilege. It's not even according to our confession of sin. For God will, for God must, punish sin. That's what he does. And it's been my practice to say to believers, to say to God's chosen, his elect, that Wherever the New Testament points to the sins of the Jews, to their self-righteousness, to their self-exemption as a special class of sinners, that the Christians of today should put themselves in the place of the Jews. We're the righteous ones. We've done all the right things. Don't look too far to find a Pharisee. He's in your seat. And so if you're mad at me for suggesting to you that you should remember that the Jews were mad at Paul, for Paul was a Jew, for Paul was a Pharisee. If you're mad for hearing that, remember the Jews were mad at Paul for saying the same thing. They were certainly mad at Jesus. We know that. 
Surely he'll feel our pain at such an accusation, but no, Paul is God's man. He, they, they thought because he was a Pharisee, he was one of them. Because he was a Jew, he's one of us. He won't say that to us. He's saying that to them. He feels God's pain first and our pain second because he has the Holy Spirit in him teaching him at that very moment of what to write, of what to say. And note that what the apostle is doing, what I'm doing this morning, is to ask you to step out of the seat of judgment and into the seat of repentance, and you will find that it is the safest seat in the house. The apostle knows what we must find out, and that is that doing is the best indicator of being. Oh, he's preaching works. I've been periodically accused of preaching works. I remember I preached on the, I taught the gospel of James in an adult Sunday school many years ago. You got a text, right? Not he who say he does the word, but he who really does the word. In other words, there's something to do. Who knew? What Calvinist knew that? I was periodically accused of preaching a work salvation message. I hope you know the absurdity of that charge. And by the way, I saved these hard copy. No one's getting that one by me. I emphatically deny it, but I have the unenviable task to be true to any text we bring before us, and this text is about works, good and bad. And I would say to you that just as the Jews were not saved due to their Jewishness, the Christians are not saved due to his religious status either. I'll come to other particulars of the gospel when Paul brings us, when Paul brings us there in the book of Romans. I'll, I'll deal with those just as emphatically. But for today, we're talking about sin because Paul's talking about sin. Today, we're talking about wrath because Paul's talking about wrath. Today, we're talking about condemnation because that's what Paul's talking about. Today, we're talking about self-examination in the light of Scripture, not in the darkness of individual pride or misplaced assurances, of blinding ourselves to our own desperate need of repentance. And that all this is because God is righteous and must punish sin, whoever you are, O man. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Friends, that's not a rhetorical question. This is the essence of the passage, friends. Last week's passage spoke of unrighteousness. This week's passage speaks of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is the worst kind of unrighteousness because it insulates us from our need. And Paul's shaking us out of our lethargy to see our need. And self-righteousness is more dangerous due to the subtle quality of sin that whispers to us that we're okay, even though we sin in the face of God. It tells us we're exempt. Sin is whispering to us. Friends, false security is worse than no security at all because it is no security at all. And the world and the flesh and the devil love to lull us into a place of self-satisfaction. And if we'll not look at sin, if we'll deny our need of repentance, we can't be helped. We just can't be helped. We're not arable ground for the gospel seed to be planted and to grow. If we search the scriptures to give us comfort and fear to go to those places that give us fear, we of all people are the most pitiable because we have both. And both pertain to the character of God. For the God who gives comfort, comfort is the same God who injects fear. And the man who will be comforted must be the same one who fears. Fear of God. 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We love to regale the goodness of God and the wonderfulness of God and the love of God, but if it doesn't leave, lead us to repent of sin, we are lying about it. That's what Paul's saying here. It's not rhetorical. It's a question that begs an answer. God is good. I know you believe that, friends. God is righteous. You believe that as well. So will not the goodness of God lead to repentance of those things that put a stain on your profession of faith? Will you look into the face of your benevolent Father and not be led to personal repentance of sin? This is Paul's plea to the church that he hasn't even visited. He hasn't even visited. It doesn't matter. It's his plea not because he knows them, but because he knows the heart of all men. It's the same in all of us. And it's not just Paul that preaches this. Listen to what Jesus preached about on many occasions. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. On one occasion he said to a group of people, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that instigated the Pharisees who said to, that, said to him, we, don't have the, we have Abraham as our father. He said, we have been in bondage to no man. You remember that? We've never been. Again, they don't know their history. They're in bondage while they're saying it. There's something expected in us that we must do. Now, we like to make this distinction, and I'll make it this morning. The Christian is not saved because what he did, but because of what Christ did. Let me throw that in there. So everybody take a breath. He didn't forget that part. But passages like this one point us to look at the change that has been wrought in a soul that claims an experience with God. Do you claim an experience of God? How would anyone know? And if there's been a change, why can we not see it? In fact, if there's been this change, why do you not do anything different than what you did before? James wrote, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. The righteous God put in our souls the desire to repent and get right with him. And if there's no repentance, there's no real reception of, of Christ. The Jews of old pointed to their lineage. We have Abraham as our father, right? And the Baptist told them, God could raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. You're not special. Ken used to say, you're not better. You're better off, but you're not better. <laughs> the Christian of today says, well, I have my doctrine to save me. I have my great knowledge of all things spiritual. I'm well studied. Friends, I'd say that doctrine is of primary importance with regard to living and teaching and growing in Christ. But can it save? What do you do with your great knowledge? What do you refuse to do with your great knowledge? Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a Calvinist woman in a Reformed church. And sometimes I think the Reformed churches have the hardest, have the hardest way to go with this. Sometimes not. But one day she heard a sermon, and the preacher happened to be Arminian. Now, that's not what you want when you're a Calvinist. You don't want to hear the Arminian talk about decisions and all this stuff, right? So she heard a sermon from an Arminian preacher, and at the end of the sermon, she was heard to say, thank God there's finally something for us to do. Has our Calvinism lulled us to sleep when it should have urged us into action? Does our doctrine say, I'm elect, I am done? That was the sin of the Jews, and they're the focus of Paul's diatribe today. I remember one time, one of my nieces asked me about love. She was very small at the time. How do you know God's love? I said to her what I've 
said to you many times, love and faith and justice and goodness, these are all good things, right? The best things in life are invisible. You can't see them. You can't see love. How do you know I have faith? You can't see faith. They're invisible things. They can only be known by their works. In fact, if I go to the lexicon, it will say agape. It will say it is known by the actions that it prompts. Otherwise, it's not there. Faith always prompts the same actions or types of actions. Actions, it doesn't prompt sin. Sin is not from faith. Same with love. And so I said to her, does your mother love you? And she said, yes. And I said, how do you know? And she answered, I I just know. Have you ever said that? I don't know, I just know. I said, show me the love so that I can see it and I can know if your mother loves you. I can't see it. And she said, I can't. And I challenged her to think of how she knows. And she blurted out, I know because she takes care of me. And she holds me and tickles me and feeds me. That's how I know. I said, that's good. Love is known by the actions it prompts. I said, the same is true of those good and perfect gifts of God. Even they are known by their works. Friends, if you look around, the most heinous sinner in the world, right? For God makes his rain fall on the just and on the unjust and makes his sunshine on the fields of the sinner and the fields of the righteous, right? If you look around and you don't see the gift of God and you don't recognize the thankfulness that you owe him, you are a dire sinner indeed. But you have the gospel here to point you to see those things. Even those things are known by their works. Friends, even God to us is known by his works. You know, when you go through the Psalms and they say, they talk about the greatness of God and then they regale the whole roster of, of God's great works. He parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through. He kept us fed in the wilderness 40 years. They give all this whole roster of things. The Shekinah glory led us a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He did all these great things, right? He's known by his works. God's part in showing his love is to nurture and feed and teach and lead. So what's our response? First, gratitude. Always gratitude. That's why it's really good when we give the prayer request for people to remember God answered last week's prayer. Sometimes we move on. What's other responses? The fact that you're here. Sabbath worship. And be delighted to be here. This isn't... You know know what? It's only the law if you hate to do it and force yourselves to do it. You don't get any credit for that anyway. We de- David said, I delight in the law of God. So it's, not a, so it's grace to him. He delights to do it. So gratitude, be thankful. Second, repentance. Be faithful in all that is well. Or rather, in all that as well. Sabbath worship is primary in the Christian life. Our weekly contributions say more about who we are than many other things in our lives. These are the things we've given our lives to six days a week. I've always said that church doesn't continue without... The contribution of all the saints, everyone's involved in this. They all have their gifts. Our commitment to the cause of Christ in the earth, our recognition of the need of it, our conviction that must partake of it is of paramount importance for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a simple thing to remember, right? Where your treasure is, there's your heart. What things do you value in life? And so Paul says that very thing in verses 5 and 6. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up something. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath 
and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Friends, do you want a personal revelation from God? Keep sinning and you'll have one. That's what he's saying. What revelation do you want? I want God to show himself and tell me how much he loves me, but that may not be what's on his mind. Keep sinning and you'll have your own personal revelation of who and what kind of deity he is. Now, it's my contention that he's making this statement to the Jews who think they're saved due to some external circumstance, that they were well-born. To the first century Jew, there were two groupings of people. There were Jews and those who wish they were. And today, there's the Christians and those who wish they were. Only no one wishes they are. Not enough do. I would also say that his warning is given to any who presume that their spoken profession a thing external that's frozen in time. I said that all those years ago, that that's the ultimate sign of who they are. Just as their Jewishness could not insulate them from the wrath of God, neither can our Christian cliches insulate us. You ever hear someone say, is he a Christian? And what's the answer? Someone answers, he made a profession when he was 14. Is he a Christian? Well, he was baptized. He has wonderful Christian parents. He went to Christian school. He acted in the school play and played the part of Jesus. (laughs) But is he a Christian? You know, I don't want someone to say of you, when they say, are you a Christian? I don't want them to say, well, I think he is. Um, He does some things that you would think are a Christian. I don't want them to say that. I want them to say, yeah, of course he's a Christian. His whole life has changed. He loves Christ. Gives his whole life for Christ. I don't want someone, when someone says, "Is, is your pastor a Christian? I don't want you to say, well... I don't know, sometimes I think yes, sometimes no. He's, you know, I mean, this isn't what you want said of yourself. You hear it all the time, right? We say it all the time. We don't want to say, no, I don't think he's a Christian because I can't see the good works. I submit to you that the same words that were directed at the Jews of Paul's time are directed to professed believers of our time. I know what you say, the apostle pleads, but look at what you do. And what of those things you see in other people? Make certain that your condemnation of such things is not rooted in your dislike of them. You know, the Jews had to, many times, you go to the book of Acts, at least two or three times, the Jews were separating themselves from the other Christians. The Christian Jews were separating themselves from the Greek Jews. which They, they, were, they were Greek in culture. They weren't all Greek. Some of the Jews were Greeks. They were Hellenized Jews. I won't get into, into all that today. But um, they didn't like the people of other cultures. James had to straighten that out in him. Paul says in the book of Galatians, he had to straighten Peter out on that fact because Peter fell back into, when they serve food, I got to eat with the I got to eat with the uh, with the Jews because they serve the wrong kind of food over there at the pagan table, right? And what of those things you see in other people? Make certain that your condemnation of such things is not rooted in your dislike of them, but in your love for God. In other words, of course you're allowed to hate the sin in someone else. Of course you're allowed to rebuke it. Hopefully with the love of the person's soul as your goal, not just in showing superiority of some sort. Verses 6 through 10, wind up the whole thing. For God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But for those who are self-seeking, he writes, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, Tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, right? But glory, honor, peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The standard is the same. 
Jesus said the very same things to his disciples when he preached, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Friends, knowing and doing are inextricably linked through the Scripture. And don't worry that on occasion the Arminian preacher might be right. Father, we praise you for your word, but we are fearful of your wrath. We recognize that you are a righteous God and we are unrighteous in and of ourselves. Oh, Father, we plead the righteousness of Christ in our place. And that when you punish sin, we may know in our hearts that it has been punished on the cross of Calvary. And the penalty is paid. That is our plea to our righteous and holy Father. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.